Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week on EU Confidential. Hundreds of thousands of protesters took to the streets of Poland at the weekend expressing their anger at the ruling Conservative government. We'll unpack what's motivating these protesters ahead of elections in Poland later this year. And in the European Parliament, a debate has erupted about how much power Hungary should have when it comes to the EU decision-making process, given rule-of-law standards in the country. In these unprecedented times, it is imperative that the Council is led by a country capable of strong collaboration among member states. Ha van jogállamisági és egyébként korrupciós probléma, az itt van Brüsszelben és nem Budapesten. Let's make it the EU presidency of the Hungarian people and not the presidency of Orban. And finally, EU Confidential is hitting the rails. Later in this episode, we'll take you along on a ride on Europe's first night train to run in over a decade between Brussels and Berlin. We are a a typical European project because we are a railway that is focusing on international connections only. And the most railways are focusing on national issues. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent. And to help me unpack this week's news, I'm joined in our studio here in Brussels with our senior policy editor, Jan Czensky. Hi. And Lily Beyer, senior reporter covering NATO and Central and Eastern Europe. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So, Poland, let's start there. Jan, maybe explain to our listeners, what prompted these most recent waves of protests? We saw these thousands of people taking to the streets on Sunday. Explain the background here. Well, the the protests had been actually planned for quite a long time. Opposition leader Donald Tusk, who's a former prime minister and a former European Council president, had wanted to sort of galvanize opposition to the current government ahead of what's likely to be uh, a crucial parliamentary election this fall. So he wanted to sort of bring people out. And June 4th is a good day because that's the anniversary of the 1989 semi-free election that signaled the end of uh, communism in Poland. So it's a it's a big day on the calendar. And Edward, he wanted to bring lots of people out on the street to show that there is opposition to the government. What happened in the meantime is a few days ago, the parliament passed a law that is supposed to set up a commission that will examine Russian influence in Polish public life from 2007 to today, basically. But the law itself is framed in a way that most experts feel is unconstitutional. It basically sets up 
an alternative court system to the courts. There's no proper form of appeal. The members are nominated by parliament where the government has a slight majority. And the verdict of the, uh, the commission is that it can exclude people from public life for a decade. And it's seen as a way, uh, a political weapon that could be used against Tusk to kick him out of Polish politics ahead of the election. And so that really caused a huge stir in Poland. And certainly many of the people who showed up for the, for the march over the weekend, as many as half a million people in Warsaw, were prompted to come out onto the streets because of this, this law. So there's been a huge backlash to this, Jan. The US has come strongly out against it. And the EU announced this week that it's actually suing the Polish government over this move. Now, the Polish president did come out with some proposed changes and amendment to the proposal uh, just before the march. Explain to us about that. Yeah, President Andrzej Duda had an astonishing uh, set of circumstances around this. He signed the bill into law on Monday, but then sent it to the Constitutional Tribunal, which is a court that's supposed to check whether uh, laws fit within the Polish constitution. It doesn't function anymore. The government actually broke the way it works. But so the law has gone into effect but then has been sent to the Constitutional Tribunal, which is the reverse of the way that you're supposed to do it. When the fuss exploded from the EU, but especially from the United States, the State Department unprompted put out a very severe comment on the law, uh, worrying about the implications for Polish democracy. Duda then did a backtrack where he is now proposing amendments to an existing law, although many people feel that the amendments don't actually deal with the core issue of the unconstitutionality of this law. Mm. So it's unclear if and when Parliament will even deal with Duda's effort. And of course, Donald Tusk is a key figure here, Jan. He would be very familiar to a lot of our listeners as the former head of the European Council, the predecessor to Charles Michel. But of course, he's a former Polish prime minister also. Uh, He was centrally involved in the Solidarity Movement and that election of 1989, for example, that saw Poland moving further towards Europe and away from communism during that period. So this idea that Tusk is somehow linked to Russia, it sounds pretty far-fetched. Uh, it does sound absurd. What the, this commission is going to look at is sort of, it's very ill-defined sort of Russian influence, but it doesn't spell out exactly what it means. And it'll have access to all public institutions and documents. So it'll have access to a vast amount of information. The first thing is that the current Law and Justice Party government has been in power since 2015. So if there was skullduggery around, you would think that they would have found it and they would have certainly enjoyed putting Tusk behind bars and the fact that they haven't been able to find anything against him would argue that there is no smoking gun. What happened was that Poland, like just about every other country, would sign long-term energy deals with Russia for gas and coal and oil and other sorts of things, the way that Germany did and many, many other countries did. In retrospect, after the first of all, after the 2014 illegal annexation of Crimea, and then especially after last year's invasion of Ukraine, there's been a broad rethink of those former contacts. And so the commission, will, pro- if it does look at Tusk, will probably aim to look at those energy contracts as things that Tusk's government signed that ended up harming Poland in the long term. However, the Law and Justice Party government was a huge coal importer from Russia right up until, in fact, after the war started. It bought uh, Russian natural gas. It bought uh, Russian oil until the beginning of this year. So all Polish governments have bought energy from Russia. But the focus of this whole 
campaign is supposed to be aimed at Tusk, at harming Tusk. So let's see how that plays out in the elections that are coming in the autumn uh, this year in Poland, which are really going to be crucial uh, for the bloc. And of course, just this week, the European Court of Justice ruled again against Poland over its controversial judicial reforms. It effectively sided with the European Commission over the question of judicial impartiality and, and the issue of the Constitutional Court. Lily, you've been covering the issue of Poland and rule of law for some time. And um, what's your view on this? Uh, what's really fascinating about this particular moment, I think, is that we've seen uh, the EU raising a lot of concerns about the rule of law in Poland for years. But then when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a sort of uh, rapprochement, I would say, between Warsaw and Brussels. And I think over the past year, uh, we've seen that for the most part, the two sides were willing to, I wouldn't say set rule of law aside, but they were willing to work very closely together on issues to support Ukraine. And I think Poland's reputation had significantly improved over the past year in this town. But what we're seeing now, I think, over the past days is a possible return to some of those previous tensions. And I think that this episode might be a reminder for many people in Brussels that even though Poland has been very supportive of Ukraine, well, for the most part, the underlying rule of law issues are still there. I think the, the, the crucial thing is that while Poland has certainly been way out in front in helping Ukraine, it never, ever took a single step back in the rule of law disputes. And so those issues have percolated in the background, and now they're coming back. So the impression of Poland shifted because of Ukraine, but the underlying problems never went away. Mm, very true. Another country that has been in the limelight this week has been Hungary. Now, Lily, you uh, have covered Hungary as well for some time. There's a very interesting debate that's really popped up in the European Parliament about this issue of rule of law, with some voices saying that maybe Hungary should not be permitted to chair the rotating seat of presidency of the Council of the European Union. They're due to take over that six-month role in the second half of 2024. Fill us in on that. So the European Parliament has passed a resolution questioning how Hungary will be able to credibly fulfill its role as the Council rotating presidency next year. It asks the Council to find a, quote, proper solution as soon as possible and recalls that Parliament could take so-called appropriate measures if a solution is not found. Now, this may sound like quite careful wording, but what is interesting here is the politics around this issue. We've seen some members of the European Parliament going out there and saying that even if there may be no way to prevent Hungary from taking the presidency, perhaps cooperation with the Hungarian presidency should be reduced to a minimum. It's still very unclear what can be done in practice about the presidency for those who oppose Hungary taking that role. But it's definitely something that uh, there's a lot of chatter about here in Brussels. What we've seen from the Hungarian side is Viktor Orban went on the radio late last week and he called this push, in his words, left-wing hysteria. He said, it's like the weather, come rain or shine, it's always the same. There's no need to concern ourselves with this. So the Hungarian government is being defined and very dismissive of the concerns about the upcoming presidency. I was in Budapest last week, and my sense from talking to people outside of EU politics is that in the Hungarian capital, this isn't a big issue at the moment. The bigger issue on people's minds is actually EU funding, mm. because Hungary's EU funds are 
for the large part, uh, still frozen. Over these rule of law, that's similar over, issues we were speaking about with Poland. Yeah. Yes, over rule of law concerns. It's a very complicated picture, but I think for Hungarians, that issue rather than the presidency issue is what is more concerning because they see the money as more tangible, whereas the presidency, I think, is seen as more of a symbolic thing from a domestic perspective. Yeah. Now, here in Brussels, of course, the presidency is a huge thing. Yeah, of course. It's it's chairing all the meetings. It does prioritize certain files, etc. So it is a hugely important role. But Jan, I mean, what's your view on this? I mean, it's not often that I would quote Viktor Orban, but does he have a point here that the European Parliament is, you know, stoking up controversy over this essentially because it doesn't like the way Hungary runs its country and this is playing into Eurosceptics' hands? Parliament doesn't actually have a voice in this. So they're sort of putting up their flag that this is inappropriate for Hungary. And right after Hungary will be Poland. So it'll be the terrible twosome who have their subsequent presidencies. But it's up to member countries. There is a real issue in that if you have any rule of law issues, which is part of the ongoing debate in the EU, how are Hungary and then later Poland supposed to chair meetings dealing with issues where they are in trouble with uh, with the rest of the EU. So they should theoretically exclude themselves from leading that. So they will be very problematic presidencies, for sure. Let's see how that unfolds. Jan, Lily, thanks so much for your contributions. Thank you. Thank you. And Lily's going to stick around for our Decoding Brussels Jargon segment, which is coming up right after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we're back now with Lily, who's going to help us with our Decoding Brussels segment this week. Our regular listeners will know that we like to take some Brussels jargon, Brussels terminology that's used around here, and explain it to our listeners. So the phrase this week is Article 7. Article 7. Lily, explain to us, what do we mean when we're talking about Article 7? So Article 7 is a provision of the EU treaties which provides a procedure which could be used against member states in the rare cases when there are concerns about breaches of the bloc's core values. And it has only been triggered twice against Hungary and against Poland. So the European Parliament a few years ago triggered it against Hungary and the European Commission had triggered it against Poland. And in theory, this is a process 
that could end with the suspension of a right to vote on EU decisions, but it has never been fully used to that extent. Uh, So where we are for years now really is a process where uh, member states check in and have hearings about what is going on in Hungary and Poland, but there has never actually been a vote to sanction them. Okay, great. So quite a powerful tool by the Commission, but hasn't actually been used yet. Thanks for that, Lily. And now it's time for us to, well, take you on a journey. EU Confidential's producer Christina Gonzalez recently hit the rails with Politico's Josh Pozaner. They took a ride on Europe's first sleeper train to run between Berlin and Brussels in over a decade. So to learn more about this route and what sleeper trains mean for Europe's broader green ambitions, I'm going to hand it over now to Josh and Christina. Evening all, I'm Josh Pisana and I'm here on platform 21 at Berlin Lichtenberg station. We're about 20 minutes away from departure of the first night train running from Berlin to Brussels in about 15 years. And this is a big deal, not only for me and my audio producer, Christina Gonzalez, who's joining me for tonight's trip, but also for the legion of lobbyists and MEPs that regularly make the commute from the capital of the EU's biggest economy all the way to the capital of the EU itself. So we'll be finding out from the two Dutch guys who set this up whether it's a viable business case moving forward. We'll also be talking about the challenges associated with putting on night trains. And finally, we'll be trying to get a good night's sleep as we rumble through Northern Germany, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Antwerp, and finally into Brussels. We hope at about 9.30 tomorrow morning. So the train is riding in. Lots of people are taking photos of the first European sleeper train. As it arrives into the platform of Berlin Lichtenberg. Okay, let's hop on board and find our cabin. There are three different classes on this train. There's about 10 carriages. There's the seating cars, and that's just for people that want to take a super budget option or just travel along some of the stations along the route without sleeping through the whole thing. Then there's the slightly more expensive couchette class, and that's uh, cabins of six beds. A bit like a tin of sardines in there. That's more for the interrailers and the more informal travellers. And then there's the sleeping cabins, which both me and my audio producer, Christina, have access to today, luckily for us. And that has more plush bedding. It's more private with only a maximum of three berths in each cabin. And so we're going to hunt down for that now, aren't we, Christina? Yes, we are. Let's go. So this is the chat cars. Six beds. What looks like 1980s style lacure decor. So the train is rumbling through the hinterland of Berlin and I just spot Chris Engelsman, the co-founder. Let's grab him for a chat. So this has taken you two and a half years to get this ready. Mm-hmm. Crowdfunded 400,000 euros. How do you make it work as a business now? 
It depends on the demand because the costs are quite high. But we do believe in the demand. So if the demand is good, there would be a profitable business. And we may have to uh, grow into that. That could be very well the case. So we have to, for instance, uh, get all kinds of a bit bureaucratic uh, things like the acceptance of interrail passes, which we will hopefully uh, introduce uh, before the summer. Sales of our tickets through the national railways in the Netherlands and Belgium. They are prepared to do that, but it costs time and... Well, what about Deutsche Bahn? Have they said they'll sell you yeah, tickets? Yeah, but that, that is a little bit more complicated because their whole front end of the website doesn't allow for night trains so anymore. It, it's not just putting on the trains, it's also figuring out how to sell the tickets. Yes, you have to yes. do that yourself right now. Yeah. And how many tickets do you need to sell a week to make it profitable? How many... How many births have you got we on have, this train? We uh, have 500 births and we need to sell about 60 or 65 percent. Who's your target audience? So you talked about the interrailers, the classic stereotype of the 18-year-old. I did it, I guess you did it too, many people uh-huh. did, 18-year-olds traveling across Europe. But also there's a lot of business travelers, right? Yeah. Climate-conscious business travelers, MEPs, lobbyists going from Berlin to Brussels, vice versa. Mm. How sure you can, you can capture that market from planes? I think um, it's a little bit more difficult than the leisure market. They would love to have a bit, a bit more comfort than the average uh, leisure traveler, I'm sure. And we, at the moment, we only have one, sometimes two, as today, of the luxury uh, sleeper coaches. Uh, and they tend to sell out first. But it is an older train carriage, right? Yes. How did you source this? How difficult was it to get it? And when are these carriages from? This is a, a lovely coach. It's, uh, it's uh, actually very comfortable because there's also quite a bit of space in the compartment. It's, it's uh, better than many night trains where it's very crampy. But uh, the coach is, is, uh, is old. It's from 1955. That's, uh, and it has obviously been refurbished uh, at the interior, maybe from the 80s or 90s. Uh, but we're building on, uh, in parallel, we're building on the next level night train where we can have, uh, well, more a more modern look and feel, also a little bit higher comfort, but especially also more privacy options. Yeah, we're going through Ursula von der Leyen's hometown. The European Commission just talked about night trains. It put your second project in its pilot list of projects. What do you need from the European Commission? Because it seems to me, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but this is a make or break project. If the EU is serious about getting night trains back, projects like yours need to work. The route makes sense. You've got the carriages, you've got the slots. If this doesn't work, surely it's all rubbish, right? No, I guess I, I, I fully agree and uh, we are a, a typical European project uh, because we are a railway that is focusing on international connections only and the most railways are focusing on national issues, which makes sense. But to us, this is a, we are really a European railway and we want to grow and we want to uh, get international night trains back on track. Um, so I think there, there's a lot at stake for the European Union also because they are very in favor of open access international train travel. And we are a good example. We, may be, we are maybe the first, uh, fundamentally speaking, uh, the first example of that. So you're hoping maybe to do to the night train business what Ryanair did to the cheap airline business in, in the way, 90s? Yeah, yeah, our model is different, but uh, it opens up. It, uh, we, we, are, we want to open up this market and, and show that it's possible to have uh, international good international network of, of trains and in this case night trains uh, and if you had one thing that you need from the EU from the Commission is it just a case of cash to help you renovate rolling stock find rolling stock what do you want them to do the Commission 
Yeah, the, we are now the pilot project, and uh, we're actually very happy with that. But it doesn't involve directly uh, any any cash of, uh, or subsidies, and I don't think that's not so much the point because we want to run night trains, and it should be profitable in itself. Um, but there's a lot of things they can do in this uh, bureaucracy and uh, possibilities, and there's obstacles to run new trains in Europe at the moment. And this uh, pilot status of the European Commission can help us with that, to break down these obstacles. And if, if Ursula von der Leyen wanted to jump on the train and drive directly from Brussels to Hanover, would you consider creating a stop in Hanover at the moment? Our train tonight will just run through the city, it won't stop. But yeah. would you put on a specific service for her if she wanted to join you? <laughs> That's a bit of a difficult question. I don't, I don't think a stop at Hanover is, doesn't make much sense because it's uh, really at 3 o'clock. At night. So even for her, I, I would <laughs> recommend her to, uh, to have a good night's sleep. All right. Well, look, Chris, thank you again. <laughs> and there I just spied John Worth, also a uh, big rail fanatic who knows a lot about the politics of getting night trains back on track. Is European sleeper make or break, John Worth? Is it make or break for what? Make for, or break for, for Europe's night train ambitions? No, it's, it's, not make, it, no, no it's not make or break for Europe's night train ambitions because basically it's a small private company that's managed, contrary to really, really difficult circumstances, to get one train running three times a week, right? This is not make or break for Europe's night trains. We need massively bigger investment than this, right? So congratulations to European Sleeper. They've got this thing running, which is brilliant in itself. But to, to save Europe's night trains, we need a hell of a lot more than this. For some people, not just me and Christina, this is a pretty big deal because it's the first night train reconnecting Berlin and Brussels in many years. So they're happy to be here for the maiden voyage. I'm Miriam, I'm going from Berlin to all the way to Brussels because my parents are in Berlin and I live in Brussels. So very convenient. And, and how convenient is it, is it for you that we now have this direct night train link? Very, like ex very much so, yes. And how would you go before? Would you always fly or would you take uh, the... I see. I should take the IC to Cologne, then there's about a 34 minute or something, uh, stay there, get some food, and then IC yeah. connection on. So I, I, I grew up in trains, I grew up in night trains, so this is like normal travel. I'm very happy to go back to night trains. So, so in that case, you're a good person to ask me, what's your impression of the night train that we have? Yes, so I've been, it's very similar to the ones uh, we, we used to take, so... Do, do you anticipate you were going to get some sleep tonight? Are you in the, the couchettes in here then? I'm here, yeah, I'm in here. Um, I expect some sleep, but I, this is the first train I'm not really expecting to sleep tonight. Also, as a child, I would like look outside when there's a, like the empty train station where it stops, because night trains, they don't really have to go anywhere very fast, so it stops there for a while, and I look outside and just, see the lights and things so it's just yeah it's it's a bit the experience more than just the sleeping <laughs> so yeah. others however didn't even know this was a thing and they're just here coincidentally on european sleepers first night where are you from i'm christiana i'm julia and we're going from berlin to brussels so are you usual train fanatics or would you fly ordinarily we looked at flights first we have to admit but it was super expensive and it was early in the morning and i'm not a morning person that's why i said let's take the night train we can sleep on there so this is actually just an accident that you guys are on the first night of the, of the yes, train yes we didn't know it was the first night we were wondering why everyone was waving yeah and, right <laughs> and what are your impressions so far of overnight rail travel it's older carriages, but the atmosphere seems very good and it's not too noisy. 
Yeah, I'm intrigued. I like the atmosphere. I also like the people. It's mostly young people, very nice people. Also the stewards, super friendly, explained everything to us. And it looks quite comfortable. And I also like the fact that we can have like a women-only cabin. That makes it very comfortable and feel very safe. How confident are both of you that you're going to be able to sleep? I was skeptical before. But now I think I, I will I can sleep here. I have a mask and some things for my ears. Earplugs. So yeah. I will hear nothing, I will see nothing. And we already I'm established sorry. none of us snores. Well, everyone says that now, but let's see what you say tomorrow morning. Okay, so the sleeping cars are right at the back of the train. So we're gonna head right to the back and find cabin number six, which is where I'll be bedding down tonight. So, cabin number six, there's two berths in here. A little bit dated, but very, very comfortable, I have to say. Has uh, beautiful, crisp, white bedding. And very conveniently for a journalist that's still got a deadline to meet tonight, a comfortable looking chair and desk, and a wash basin in the corner which you can pull out. It's seen better days, we have to be honest. But given that these carriages are from the 1950s, renovated probably a few decades ago. I think actually it's really comfortable. It's quite spacious. I would like to tell you that there is a menu and so we can dine out tonight on some nuts, Pringles, nacho chips with salsa, noodles, oh. a lotus waffle. What's a lotus waffle? I think those are Belgian waffles. Right? Really? It's a brand, yeah. Okay, well, we'll But I to want to know out. what noodles are. It's very non-specific. And got wine, beers, European sleeper Weizen. But is there a restaurant car or did they bring it here? Do we know this? No, there is no restaurant car. Uh, and these have all but become extinct on European night trains, except in Central and Eastern Europe, because they're not profitable to run. Okay, so it's 33 minutes past midnight. It's about bedtime for me. We're just leaving Hanover, uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen's hometown. Our next stop is Bad Bentheim, the border with the Netherlands in a few hours time and with any luck I'll be fast asleep by then on the middle bunk in the sleeping car and um, I'll speak to you in the morning after hopefully a refreshing night's sleep. Breakfast is served at 8am. Yeah, yeah, well, actually, it's around eight o'clock. I think we've just passing Rotterdam. I got about six hours sleep. How about you, Christina? Not too bad, maybe about the same. Yeah, yeah. it's breakfast time now. We're heading for Antwerp. So just breakfast. Thank you. There's two black coffees, crackers. Then got some strawberry yogurt, some Ardennes pate, some Nutella. Wouldn't be a good proper train trip without Nutella. No, Ladies and gentlemen, in about 15 minutes from now, we will be arriving at Brussels Midi. Please do not forget your personal belongings. On behalf of European Sleeper and the entire crew of this train, we would like to wish you a pleasant stay. Here we go. There we go. 
3.15, le train IC à destination de Here we are in Brussels, about, let's look at the clock, about 45 minutes later than expected, in fact exactly 45 minutes later than expected. Shall we see how other people got on? Yeah. So we're, we're back with Christiane and Julia on the platform with the announcements raging behind us. Guys, how did you find the sleep on the night train? I had a bit of trouble falling asleep at first, um, but in the morning hours it worked, it worked well. Yeah, I had a surprisingly good night. I slept like a baby. <laughs> so I really, it's I really soft enjoyed it. Rocking motion. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the critical question is, would you do it again? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 10 out of 10, we'll do it again. <laughs> so this is not the last time you're going to take a sleep no. train. So that's the end of our journey for today. Other passengers are scrambling for onward connections. Some are going to London, some to Cologne, some to Lille. But we're going to head to the office and straight to work. To flip things forward, my colleague Hannah Kokolaira sat down with Belgium's Transport Minister Georges Gelkinet to talk about the prospects for turning Belgium and this Brussels MIDI station where we've landed this morning into a European night trains hub. What's the best way to build Europe to then to allow people to ride in a train across Europe to see the different landscape, to meet the different language, to different citizens of all countries, and you can do that with a train better than in, in a plane. There are more and more night trains coming back in Europe. As Europe, we have to help them to develop because it's a part of the mobility of the future. So it's the ultimate European symbol then? It's also a European symbol. It's not only, only a romantic story. There is an economic model, there is a demand from citizens, and yes, it's a very good way to build Europe, to unify our train system, uh, so that it will be easier in the future to make a train ride with goods or with people. And what's the next step? Well, the next step is to have more companies here in, in Brussels. We want to make from Brussels a hub for international trains, and we have to, uh, a lot of demand for the sorts of of Europe, for Italy, for Spain, for the south of France, and I hope to have in the future more companies from night trains in Belgium. Two years ago, I think, uh, as I began as a minister, I met uh, the Enterprise European Sleeper, the two people who are leading it, and it was their dream, and they achieve it now for, with the first train. And uh, yes, it's uh, something very uh, important, and it shows it's possible but it's also a response to a, a demand from people and uh, it has uh, economic sense as alternative in the mobility for a short distance journey in Europe against the plane which is most polluting the train is the greenest way to to move in Europe thanks so much to Josh Christina and Hannah for taking us on that journey and that's all we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please do be sure to follow us and we'd also love if you want to give us a rating or a review. Finally, if you love podcasts and have experience in audience development, we're looking for someone to join our team and help us grow our podcasts here at Politico Brussels. You can email us at podcast at politico.eu for more info. This week's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, 
with production assistance from Ellen Bonin. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week.